Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast. I'm Sean Kane. This week on 4th of October comes the biggest day of publishing for the whole year. Super Thursday like the nice version of retail events Black Friday or Cyber Monday. It's all about books, books, books. 544 of them, to be precise, released on the 4th of October in the hopes that one of them will emerge victorious, standing on its fallen bookie brothers and sisters to become the big bestseller this Christmas. So we've chosen two books that are out this season. Both, in very, very different ways, bring us a better understanding of our world. Both writers believe that good is essentially everywhere and have happily come to that conclusion by reaching out across the world to countries, peoples and religions little known to understand them better. Simon Reeve found his way back from the brink of suicide and a trip to Scotland ended up taking him on a journey of his entire lifetime. But first, Neil McGregor. Though prominent in his own right as the director of the National Gallery in London and then the British Museum, McGregor really became a household name with a history of the world in a hundred objects, a rollicking roller coaster through the millennia via 100 objects from the British Museum. This time he's looking at societies through the prism of religion. McGregor's beautiful new tome looks at how beliefs have the power to define and divide. When he joined Richard Lee in the studio, Richard began by asking, why write about religion now? The reason for writing the book now is because in a way that I don't think anybody would have imagined 50 years ago. Religion is now politically centre stage. We can't understand the world now unless we think about why religion matters to people so much. That's the reason for writing the book. That's what the book's trying to address. Why does religion matter so much that it's now a real political force in a way we didn't expect 50 years ago. Just grabbing that moment. Yep. Now, you use much the same method here as you did for your history of the world in 100 objects. Why use places and objects to explore religion? I think one of the problems for most of us from Western Europe thinking about religion is that we always start by thinking about texts. We're familiar, obviously, mostly with Christianity or Judaism or Islam, but for most of us, religion is about texts, revealed truths in words that then get fought over and constrain activity. The religions of the book. The religions of the book. The great thing about using objects is it takes you out of that world completely. It lets you think globally. And the point of the book was, of this book, was to be able to think about religion and society 
as a global phenomenon. And most societies, of course, most of them have never had texts. Many religions, great religions like Hinduism, don't have one central text. And things equalize. They also let you speak about indigenous religions, which are concerned with a particular landscape. So things have a very democratizing, or equalizing, not democratizing is the wrong word, things have a very equalizing uh, effect. They let you approach all patterns of belief and how communities engage as a community with those ideas. But the object that you begin the book with, uh, the Lion Man of Ulm, shows some of the advantages and disadvantages of that approach, um, offering us a glimpse into the lives of people living in what's now southwest Germany about 40,000 years ago. But the kind of very breadth that makes it possible to read across that distance also gives problems. Can we even be sure that it was a religious object? We can't. Uh, and of course, it brings us back to the question of what we mean by religion. I think why it seems the right place to start is this is the, a small statue made out of mammoth ivory, mammoth tusks, of a man with the head of a lion. And it was made about 40,000 years ago, Ice Age, people living on the edge of survival. And somebody has spent an enormous amount of time making this. This glorious thing. It's a wonderful, it's a great sculpture. It's a great work of art. It's a great thing. And the question is, why would you spend that amount of time on this creating, but also this is probably the first object we have, three-dimensional object, that represents something that doesn't exist. So an idea or a story has been made into a thing. And that thing is about the biggest animal that you would confront, the mammoth, and the fiercest, the lion. Mm. And it ties it to the human body. So I don't think it's too far-fetched to say that this thing is about a story, a story about survival, where mankind, humanity, is actually the smallest of the, <laughs> or, or, or relatively small among the animals, doesn't control them, doesn't command them, but has to find a place for itself in a world where the climate is very hostile, but where the animals are dangerous, and a narrative about how the group that's in the cave is going to work. And could in some way get mastery over these uh, extraordinary animals. Exactly that, or understand their place in the world that contains them. What is very interesting about that object is that not only is it a great sculpture, but it appears to have been handled many, many times over a long period. It looks as though it was held by many different people. And it was found in a cave which appears not to have been a cave used for habitation and living. They're just too cold? Uh, no, it doesn't have the remains of fires which you find in other caves. It appears to have been a cave set aside for other purposes. So there's a suggestion there, and what's wonderful about deep history is that you can only have suggestions, but there's a suggestion there in the evidence that there's a space set aside for some kind of activity which contains objects which are not for daily use. The statue of a lion man has no use. There are other objects like uh, necklaces of foxes' teeth, reindeer antlers, objects not to do with daily life, but where people gather to do something, and that would mean a fire. And we imagine, we have to imagine them, I think, round a fire with a story, sharing the object, and that object is about... Uh, about their place in the world. The question why you would spend so much time on it 
takes you right to the heart of this because from that I think we can argue that a society needs a narrative about itself in order to survive. Everything in that period is about survival, obviously. And deep historians would argue that communities that have a story about their place in the world, a shared story, a shared story in which everybody has a part, those communities are much stronger and much more likely to flourish and survive than ones that don't have such a story. This is one of the threads that runs through the book is the idea that religion is in some sense a defence against short-termism. You've got the, the Peruvian mummy bundles who are brought into the debate. They're literally dead people who take part in a debate in some sense so, so that you can think beyond your immediate situation. Is it, is that, that's, there's something of an irony in that where, where religion these days is, is working against issues such as climate change or, or social housing or things like that which are very much long-term issues. That's one of the reasons I, I, I found the, the chance to look at other religions from far beyond Europe very, very helpful. Because what the Peruvian mummy bundle tradition shows is that in Peru, you kept the, distinct, the important dead, the leaders that were dead, and you brought them into the debate. As mummies, they sat round the table, as it were, discussing what the community should do. A notion that the community exists across time beyond an individual life and it embraces not only the dead but the future. One great community belonging across time. And that dimension of religions to move to the long term and link the unborn and the future with the long past and see it as a continuum is wonderfully articulated in that Peruvian habit. It's something that obviously an agnostic Western world has lost both the long past and, above all, the responsibility for the future and the link with the future. It's also perhaps something that's all the more important in societies which are where texts are less central. I think exactly that. When there's no text that tells you a story and writes down a story, you have to enact it. And you refresh the story by enacting it, which can be bringing out the ancestors, sitting with them. The Chinese habit every year of bringing out the portraits of the ancestors and bringing them up to date with what happens in the family. They are still part of the story. And one of, the, one of my favourite objects in the, in, in the book is a portrait of a Chinese ancestor which appears to have been changed to show that his, his descendant had been promoted in the civil service. So the ancestor gets promoted as well. <laughs> There's a real sense of a community across time. I guess we sort of think of the past as something that we relegate to libraries or museums in some sense. Is that partly why we've lost this sense of long-termism? I think it's very much part of that sense. Um, we, we've lost the notion that the, the dead are still in some way with us. And, that's not, and the important part of that is that that means we've lost the notion of how we think forward. And the, 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 one of the things I find very fascinating is the way festivals do this, because the, the festival celebrating at the same moment every year with the community is, of course, one of the great ways of showing that although time passes, uh, the community remains. And the festivals that we take part in, we know our ancestors did, and we know our descendants will. It places the community ritually in a much bigger 
space of time. An assertion of past and future at the same time. Exactly. One of the, another threads that runs through the books is this connection between religion and politics, how it's grounded in matters of social organisation, like the, the shrine of Ningirsu from 2,000 years before Christ, which was a both temple and a kind of court of some sort. And also, or, or like the word basilica, which comes from the Greek word for a royal court of justice. And you even have contemporary politicians, as you say, getting involved with a festival like the Durga Festival or uh, American presidential candidates professing their, their belief. Politicians in the UK are much more reticent. I mean, Alistair Campbell famously saying, we don't do God. Do you think that there's some sort of truth there that the UK is embarked on different kind of experiments? I think the whole of Western Europe effectively has. And it's a post-Enlightenment view that the political realm is separate from the religious. One of the things I want to try to argue in the book is that actually religion and politics are both ways of answering the same question. Who are we? Who is the community? And what do we want to become? And because Durkheim would have argued, the, the great French sociologist would have argued that what people venerate in a religion is an ideal form of the society itself, what they would like the society to be. Now, that was overtaken, of course, in Western Europe by national politics, sometimes nationalism, sometimes socialism, but an idea of where the community was going. Both those have lost their power, in Europe at least, since the war, uh, in, the, in the last 50 years. And I think we shouldn't be surprised that when the political narrative fails, as you can see, especially in the Middle East, then the religious narrative becomes even stronger. People, it's, it's filling that vacuum. Filling that vacuum. People need to be able to define themselves as a community with a narrative of belonging and a narrative of a future. And if the politics can't offer that, then, of course, religion does. You stress along the way through the book, uh, quite a lot, uh, the ways in which religions, as you say, assert essentially the same thing, that we are each part of a narrative much bigger than ourselves, members of a continuing community in which there's a shared companionship of purpose. But just what you said about the Middle East there makes me wonder if that's ignoring, rather, all the ways in which religions can divide the world into incompatible thems and uses. It absolutely does divide, and that's one of the things we try to address. Obviously, if it creates one community... The question is, how does that community relate to other ones with a different narrative? And it clearly divides across the Middle East, where the national political narrative has broken down. The different communities have redefined themselves through their religion. It's also, I think, one of the very interesting phenomena about what's happening in France, because France, more than any other Western European country, developed the idea of the nation as the religion after the revolution and the rituals of the state and the observance of the state and belonging to the state has been central to an idea of what France is. And since the revolution, since and France has long found it very difficult to accommodate religious communities that identify themselves as a community within the state. The expulsion of the Huguenots in 1685 is a demonstration of that the difficulties with, the, with Judaism around the Dreyfus Affair, the difficulties with organised Catholicism under the lay republic and now with Islam. It's, I think, particularly difficult for a country that has elevated the state community, the national community, to being the only one 
to allow and to, to come to an accommodation with other communities that define themselves as communities, but with a different narrative. I guess perhaps these areas where the where people of differing religions come into conflict, perhaps one of the areas in which looking at the objects, the spaces, the practices, is less revealing. It is. It's the limitation of the, the approach. I think the approach, starting with objects or places, can help to understand how religions generate and sustain a sense of belonging community. The objects on the whole don't really help us very much to understand what happens when two communities come into conflict with each other and how that can be resolved. Now, this is one of the things that if you, to take the statue with which you finish the book, it's a, it's a rather beautiful wooden statue of, of Mary extending her protective cloak over men and women of different ages and types, as you say, all either praying or looking anxiously out, made in Ulm, back in Ulm, um, <laughs> around 1480. You read it as an image of uh, sustaining a community of belief, but could it not also be read as an image of, of domination or exclusion? That's, of course, always the, the trade-off. I mean, that is an image uh, of a community gathered under the protection of a shared ideal. I mean, it is Mary, it's the Catholic Church, whatever. And they're all moving forward in this ideal. But, of course, we all know that if you want to fulfil yourself as part of a community, that means there are restrictions on how you can fulfil yourself as an individual. And this has been, of course, the great development in Europe over the last 50 years, that the growing concern has been the right of the individual to fulfil themselves as an individual in the way they choose, not to fulfil themselves as part of a community meeting the obligations established by the community. The, that is why I think one reason why Europeans, the Western world, uh, so to speak, finds the idea of the individual being fulfilled in the group, which is the religious assumption, a very difficult one. Uh, which makes things, uh, these issues of long term, as, as we were talking about earlier, all the more difficult to grapple with. Because the individual, if the individual is being fulfilled as an individual, then of course there is no long term. Um, <laughs> And it is, and of course, this explains why religions are very properly and often seen as oppressive, cruel, restrictive, and that can develop to violent extremes. But the other side of that is the value given to the group and the community in the future. And I think that's why we find it difficult to understand the attraction of this now, because we have focused with wonderfully good results on the freedom of the individual. But we've lost, I think, a language that is about the obligation to the group and the obligation to the, to the future. Do you think that science, with its stories of vast space, deep time and a shared biological heritage, do you think science might be able to step into the gap, answer the need for a narrative bigger than ourselves? There's no doubt that science can offer the explanation of the world. Whether science can offer a meaning to our existence is a separate thing. And I, I believe that one of the problems that Western Europe has with religion is that because the idea of religion as an explanation of thunder or earthquakes... It has, just doesn't has, work. It doesn't work and has, <laughs> been, has been completely overtaken by science. The whole notion of religious structures has been rejected. But that other side of religion as offering meaning was, of course, taken up by some political movements in, in the late 19th and particularly early 20th century. But those movements have also now faltered. 
And the narrative of meaning to existence is what our politicians are demonstrably struggling with in Western Europe, everywhere in the Western world. And that is precisely the area where religion does offer something coherent, clearer to many people. And I don't think we should be surprised that when the state narrative collapses completely, as it has in the Middle East, that the, the best hope for many people seems to be this other narrative. Or, or perhaps there's a place for art. There's clearly a place for art, and it's no accident that almost all religions wind up producing objects which we can, we, you know, the Western category can think of as art. Going back to the Lion Man, representations of something that we hope for, but which doesn't actually exist. That reaches beyond. That reaches sense. beyond. What that doesn't do, of course, art as such doesn't demand from the spectator any sacrifice, any cost to contribute to the future. And that is an essential part of the belonging of a religious community, that there's a cost to the individual for the long-term benefit of the group. This lavish publication is destined to be a massive bestseller. Your History of the World in 100 Objects has sold more than 250,000. Does that give a writer like yourself an extra responsibility when you tackle a controversial subject like religion? I think writing about religion is particularly complex because what this book is absolutely not about is a plea for religion. It's not arguing that religion is something that is necessarily good or that we should return to. The point of this is to try to consider how religion affects the way societies organise themselves. And the responsibility when you're writing about religion is much greater than I think in any other area because you know that these are questions, ideas, which are of existential importance to many people. And what I've tried to do in the book is never to question the narrative which is proposed. The narrative is what it is, and it's up to individuals to decide whether they accept it, believe it, whatever. What we're looking at is what the consequences as a society are of accepting that narrative and living that narrative. That's a balance I found very difficult. I hope I've managed it. I hope I've been able to write about different kinds of belief systems, different belief patterns with equal respect and equal distance and focusing on what that means for the societies. For us as we confront the world we live in. And above all, for us as we try to understand the world we live in. One of the great advantages of working with things is that you can also work with dead religions. And working with the Roman gods, for instance, is very helpful because the way the Romans constructed their notion of the gods as diverse, complex, never finite, never limited, never entirely graspable, meant that they were able to add and absorb new gods so that as they conquered new provinces, they could not only make the subjects that they'd conquered citizens of Rome in some measure, they could also bring their gods into the pantheon. They could honour their gods. This allows, I think, a very interesting kind of imperial model because while there's no doubt who's in control, you can reverence the local tradition as an equal. You can bring those gods to Rome, build them a temple there. You can continue worshipping them 
on the spot. And part of the success of the Roman Empire as a political unit surviving over centuries, more than anything else in Mediterranean history, <laughs> must be that capacity to absorb different ways of believing by honouring them all more or less equally. A motto that we could perhaps learn from ourselves. I think it's very striking the difference that the the monotheist Christian empires of Western Europe, they could never do that. They were never in a position to offer equal honours to even the god of the Jews and the Muslims, let alone the, the gods of the Hindus. So that particular honouring of the deepest and highest narrative of the conquered was never available. And I think we're still living with some of the consequences of that. Neil McGregor was speaking with Richard Lee. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Last year, The Guardian tracked all the deaths of young people due to knife crime and explored the themes that emerged in an award-winning series called Beyond the Blade. Why are they carrying a knife in an area where they know people but they feel that they have to acquit themselves from other people? We saw many people suffering, but we also saw many fighting back. We've got to start looking at how we talk and how we generalise and how we categorise just ordinary people that are poorer than other people or people who don't have as much as other people. For this new series, journalists from The Guardian travelled to Bristol, Birmingham and Croydon in South London to listen to some of those people. Society tends to look down at young people once they've made a wrong choice and what we're saying by that is that we're writing them off. And rather than report on their conversations, we let them speak for themselves. When I come out of jail, I'd never been praised before I'd turned my life around. And when I come out and got praised for the work that I was doing, I thrived. That gap needs to be built up a, a bit sooner, you know? As opposed to, yeah, just waiting to hear from, hear from me because I'm waiting to hear from the next generation as well. So we're all waiting and there's no like action happening, happening, happening. If families are fractured, that has an impact on a young person. If a father and a mother get divorced, that has an impact on our young people. And I think the only way they know how to make people sit up and say, listen, there's a real problem going on here, is by violence. To listen to all three episodes, head over to theguardian.com forward slash podcast. Or subscribe by searching Beyond the Blade on your favourite podcast app. There are some guests and interviews we do on this podcast that cut to the very heart of things. And this one with Simon Reeve did just that for me. Known perhaps more for his tele-adventures, as he calls them, the first public impact he really had was when 9-11 happened, when Reeve, only in his 20s, turned out to be the only English-speaking author of a book on Al-Qaeda. This soon led to more adventures, 
and all of these have come together in his wonderful book, Step by Step. His memoir covers the expected destinations, some of which you may have seen on his BBC TV shows, like playing polo with a headless goat in Kazakhstan or following the equator around the world. But it also goes somewhere quite raw, back to his childhood where the family arguments would get so bad that the police were called to stop them, a teenage suicide attempt. So, sitting down opposite a very well-known face, I began by asking him where he found the strength to find the positives and the negatives. I think we should all learn from everything in life, really, shouldn't we? And uh, my life has certainly not been as tragic or as traumatic as many other people's lives, but the challenges I've faced, I would like to think I have learnt from them, whether consciously or, or subconsciously, because I think I've never really looked back, actually, mm. and it was a bit of a shock to me how upsetting and emotional thinking about this book made me and how writing about it made me feel it's definitely quite a lot of it's from the heart and uh, I feel like I've opened myself up a bit whether that's helpful for people or boring I leave them to (laughs) decide but I think definitely I've tried to learn from the experiences I've had and perhaps that's partly I felt always in life like a bit of a blank slate and I don't come from a background of education, for example. Mm. Uh, I didn't have a specialism drummed into me when I was at school or university because I didn't really listen at school and I didn't really go to... I didn't go to university. So Mm. life has been more of the the learning for me and I've tried to milk it as much as I can. (laughs) Whether that is difficult times, you know, as a kid or whether as as an adult on, on these mad and wonderful journeys and um, talk, you referred to education just then and it is interesting that I think a lot of us maybe sort of see these people on TV and they go probably went to Oxbridge and mm. did this this and this and then they end up here and just how absolutely that's not your story at all <laughs> I mean you tried to you applied for um, was it you went to go do an exam was it at Oxford I did yeah in my <laughs> early 20s um, yeah. I mean, this feels a little bit, I was a little bit down the line almost then into becoming some sort of adult. But I still was quite chippy about lack of a university, not just the qualification, but the life, the confidence, I think, that comes from it as well. The social bearing as as, as, as well. And I went back, for, uh, I went back, I went to Oxford for a, for an interview and realised very quickly it wasn't going to work. I, you know, I was in a completely different world. I was working on investigations uh, I gravitated as it were or graduated from being a postboy on a newspaper to working on quite hardcore investigations and I had a walkie-talkie I wasn't going to go back to um to to waiting in line to be spoon-fed my knowledge I was I felt like I was out there more so yeah I'm I, I regret in some ways not going to university I'm keen for my lad to become the first in our family ever to do it um, but I won't force him because mm. I feel that it wasn't really right for me and I'm a big advocate for you know not necessarily doing the degree you don't want to do and rather getting out there and finding purpose and meaning through work or other experiences. Because when we start I'd say probably we get the most information about you in your teens and it's a really sad picture that you beat yourself up quite a lot and mm. there's quite tragic sort of accidents involving lampposts and <laughs> snapped glasses 
you don't really know how you're going to get out of that. But it is quite amazing. I, I expect it, suspect it's probably been streamlined in the book, but it, mm. it feels like a very sudden journey of how you figured out what did interest you. If, if you know, school didn't interest you and university wasn't really a prospect, what mm. were you going to do with your life? And I just loved how this random journey to Scotland based on your affection for Highlander, I think it was. <laughs> the movie was a classic. Well, <laughs> it was very particularly good. Particularly if you're a, uh, an impressionable young Simon, then uh, I was rather taken with it. But yeah, yeah, I went on a journey and that changed my turbulent, troubled life, yes. And I love that you sort of, you went on this big walk mm. and then you kept being told this is probably a little bit dangerous. Perhaps you should turn back at this point and you haven't got the right clothes on. You're like, no, no, no. Like, I'm going to still do this, which I I sort of loved having watched your shows. The and stupidity. Then, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then you end up in the middle of nowhere and you're like, okay, well, what do I do now? And yes. that sort of struck me as um, a, a nice foreshadowing for what was to come <laughs> later on. In um, a way, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it, I certainly feel the connection between that daft lad then and what what I do now and the joy and experience that you can get from the sheer act of going on a journey. And mm. I think it is, yeah, it's a bit of a cliche now, isn't it? Everybody, companies, flipping Ecker now, come with us on our, our corporate journey. You know, <laughs> yeah. everyone's jumping on that, that bandwagon, but it's a bandwagon because it's been part of humanity's story forever. It's what we all do and it's what we've done. That's how there's seven and a half billion of us across the planet. So I had my own little journey, where, as you say, I was in a very difficult stage in life I was coming out of the darkest period of my life where um, I nearly became one of the, the statistics really on young male suicide and a journey I took that is this journey that you mentioned up to Scotland went on this slightly silly walk because it was late afternoon and I climbed up this this mountain and hillside and shouldn't have really done it and nearly became one of those Muppets you hear about mountain rescue having to take off <laughs> that have left the big city complete, completely unprepared. And um, fortunately, I wasn't. I survived it, wasn't, didn't have to be rescued, made it out. And, I, you know, I, I know everything. Life, life is a cliche in so many ways, but this single moment really did transform me. And yes, every book is... Of course, things are streamlined, but it was that fast. And I think it's quite, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make that point again in a way, because I think it's, I think it's quite key that you can go in life from, from being in the depths of darkness to just having a few uh, moments of light or to having purpose and meaning brought into your existence. And it can transform you. And that we are so adaptable, we can survive and endure. Some, not not everybody, but some of us can in, adapt and endure if given the chance. Mm. And I was given a chance, and it was the right chance for me. And I took it, and I changed, and I was pretty transformed, pretty quickly. Mm. And it's a bit scary for me thinking about it now and looking back. You know, I went from suicidal to in a short space of time being confident and self-assured enough to start going on these mad little missions as a junior deputy investigative 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 journalist for goodness sake is what i was so mm. throughout the book you refer to yourself as the boy on the bridge which mm. is referring to this moment where you described yourself as it was a whisker away from suicide mm. which is a clearly a very a, a private thing to share in your book but I was struck that throughout the book you refer to this incident in various moments as the boy on the bridge and 
it struck me that it must feel like a very separate version of you that boy on that bridge that because you do make reference to that you still have very high highs and very low lows mm. and anxiety and panic attacks which you refer to throughout are not necessarily things that people just leave people even if they're successful on telly mm. that sort of thing does it feel separate to you or is it a part of you that's always there it's definitely a part of me or it's definitely a part of me now it's a smaller part than it was and it's drowned or diluted let's put it that way by the confidence i think that's come with life since and the love of family and friends and the purpose and meaning i've i've got in my life but no it is it is still there and it is a very private thing to talk about but why not mm. i think people are too private and and we're too british in many ways and we need to discuss this and it was really it was really one of the two reasons for me to write the book to be honest because one was to tell my lad I've got a seven-year-old son and I want him to have a little bit of a record if you like of of my life that maybe he'll look through at some point um, or look at the pictures at least um, <laughs> but the other was because it troubles me that that still we have this epidemic of suicides particularly amongst young men and I still feel the the elements within me that can that can push somebody like me who can be fragile um, uh, over the edge and I think it, it lives in so many people and we don't discuss it enough and I think that was the reason you know, to, to, to share the story which I hope is honest and I'd never really talked about before I hadn't talked to my wife about it I hadn't talked to my brother about it in detail I'd not talked to my mum so I've really dragged yeah. it out of me and it was upsetting to it's it's you know I'm I've got a, a lump in my throat as I'm talking about it with you now because of the honor of the privilege of doing this but the act of sharing is is emotional and cathartic I'm always, no, I'm that is me it is I, that is the person I am but I've changed and I've grown and and um I feel pity and a bit of sadness for that lad who was very lost as many youngsters are now and it's a very difficult time you know to be pretty educationally hopeless and to leave school with no idea what you're doing to have no life plan no career no plan of what you're doing next and suddenly you're out and it's all on you mm. it was scary by f much scarier than anything I've done as an adult and I think as a nation we're still pretty poor at channeling youngsters towards what they can have next I I drifted and I sank mm. I mean part of me did wonder how a boy in your circumstances then would cope today just in terms of you referred to um you were seeking you were having counseling services on mm. the nhs and how at times you were comforting your counselor because they were so stressed out mm. um in terms of things being stretched and just trying to transfer all these sorts of things to today to be at a loss to, with what to do with your life so many people are mm. and that there's it's obviously risky for any jumped up telly person to generalize too much about humans around the planet but i will do anyway because <laughs> um, uh, i've traveled a lot and there are some, some consistent themes you know, for us as a species we need we need so much purpose and meaning in our lives and some people i meet who are lost or at a loss so often 
seems to me that that's the the fundamental they're lacking and some people can be led to that purpose and meaning they can be introduced to it um they can be guided helped but rarely can you be forced to find it but all of us have to i feel so deep within me we all have to find that we all have to look for it and and perhaps knowing that it's something to seek mm. can be important and identify okay right so this this football team this is my purpose and meaning this elderly relative this is my purpose and meaning this this faith this job this whatever but you have to have it mm. and beyond security and food you know these it is it is absolutely up there with the fundamentals and i didn't have it uh i found it but i was lucky and so going from that the boy on the bridge and then going on his scottish journey it's quite an amazing then couple of years there for you because I, I just i loved that you went to mi6 and then just asked them for a job oh i cringe <laughs> at that yeah it's so funny um and, and then that didn't happen but then bizarre. you did end up end up working at the ministry of defense for like a day didn't you a morning a morning, a morning. and then you got bored and then you left <laughs> it, well, i didn't get bored i could just see that it was it was a uh it would have been an awful job i was going for any job i could possibly get you know every i, I went around oh as the hair started to go up as i remember that time <laughs> you know i trekked to four or five job centers that i would i would go to um getting the papers was it loot then as well there was this free ads paper i would go through i was you know this is before online okay in the back in the dark ages <laughs> and i was i was applying for anything and everything i went for security guard jobs janitor jobs driving jobs I was the only person who applied for one job driving a white van, delivery driver job on Wembley, Wembley Park trading estate. And I was turned down for that, even though I was the only person who applied. Yeah. I mean, I was I was bumping along the bottom. And <laughs> then I was then I applied for a job as an admin clerk or something at the Ministry of Defence. And they, they let me they let me through the door. But they showed me into this locked room where I had to I was just photocopying things. And it was the greyest room you've ever seen with the greyest people you were locked in the room you had to be ring a ring for someone to take you to the loo i just thought i can't do this i cannot <laughs> however bad things are i can't do this and i walked out and i, I never went back they sent the police they sent special branch around because i'd signed the official secrets it was just ridiculous i refused to come out <laughs> mum managed to get rid of them i i was so impressed that your mum was like i don't think they want he wants to speak to you she, she <laughs> persuaded special branch to leave me alone. <laughs> that's so great and i'm just so struck though that between this this young guy that doesn't have a job and mm. you know it's still his confidence is pretty knocked still has the confidence to go into mi6 and say Hey guys, I'd, I'd quite fancy working. For there me. isn't any streamlining there, mm. right? There's no compression of time it, no. it, or, or expansion of. I decided not to kill myself and chose life, as it were, train spotting line. <laughs> um, and then the journey, it, that, that trip to Scotland, I mean, really, it gave me such a lot of confidence. And, and I, I stepped out there and I, pff, with a new little bit of vigour, and went for it and i know it's it's a little bit mad and embarrassing to re recount now i turned up at the headquarters of mi6 and asked for a job it's so great uh, though <laughs> ludicrous beyond belief but i think the, the thing about that comes i come back to that, that i come i come back to that point where mm. somebody who is in the depths there is still salvation that's possible and sometimes it can be really simple and rarely can you force 
somebody out of that situation. But if they see the ladder coming down or they see a way out, you, they, it can be taken and a person can transform themselves. I've sat down with people now as an adult doing these telejourneys who have been through hells that you and I cannot begin to comprehend. And it's sometimes it's happened to them very recently. Mm. And family and community and love has carried them through that and they've survived and they'll always have it with them but we can we can overcome unbelievable situations and um i i think that's quite an inspiring sense it's quite an inspiring aspect of us mm. and yeah i was transformed enough to go knocking on the door of mi6 i just thought it'd be an interesting job <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to shame you for it because I admired your, your chutzpah for doing it. Chutzpah, yeah. <laughs> so then, yeah, you were sort of all over the place. I sort of feel like I'm telling you your life. but um, I, I'm loving it. <laughs> this is, just a, this is a, a, an honour and a highlight for me. I was just thinking, I'm going to get my phone out and take a picture of you doing this because I don't want to forget it. <laughs> I mean, then you're at Sunday Times. Yeah. Again, and you flourished. And it, it does strike me that actually your, your, your ability to talk to strangers does make you particularly suited to... To being assigned to go talk to neo Nazis in Boston, Lincolnshire, which I, I loved that story too. Yeah, I don't want to like spoil too much of that because everyone should read this book. But then you then got your first book deal after yeah. the 1993 uh, World Trade Center bombings. Yeah, um, and you wrote the New Jackals. That's right. Yeah, I remember um, this. You remember you're, this? You're flicking through my life. Yes. Now, yeah. <laughs> um, and then I actually never realised this, but then you sort of had this whole new significance when the world trade centers the 9-11 happened suddenly you were being called upon as a sort of authority on american news and all over the world mm. about al-qaeda can you just talk a bit a little bit about that that sort of escalation of something you're at like a very public figure talking yes. about something monumental yeah it was some um, something monumental yes it was it was very strange as you say i started out as a postboy on the sunday times I sort of owe my career and working life to Andrew Neil, <laughs> um, which I fess up now. Yeah, uh, I'm not ashamed to say he um, he wanted to create a more meritocratic environment there, so he got some people without Oxbridge degrees to come and work um, initially in the post room, but with a promise of maybe we'll let you um, fetch some packages as well and do a bit more. And I took that chance. I was working by the time I was what 21 was when the first attack on the World Trade Center happened in 1993. I started researching that the same day it happened. And talk about chutzpah, I madly decided I was going to write a book about that, about the attack and the aftermath and the investigation and everything about it, which I thought was so intriguing on so many different levels. And I spent five years writing a book that became, bizarrely, the first book in the world on Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. came out in 1998. Hardly anybody read it, of course. Um, <laughs> one of my conclusions was that they were a new type of apocalyptic terrorist. And, you know, there's areas where the book doesn't hold up very well in, the, in, in hindsight. But for what I did, it was, you know, I'm, I'm fairly proud of the investigation I had to do and the access I managed to get on all sides actually it was a hell of a thing to do on your own out there with no backup and um book came out i 98 i worked on other books i worked on or wrote six or seven books wrote a book about the munich olympics massacre it was also a oscar-winning feature documentary people might remember 
Um, <laughs> and I was sort of bumbling along in some ways. And then 9-11 happened and I'd written the only book mm. that was out there. And I was in a very difficult place personally at the time. I'd just lost, my dad had died, my partner had walked out. I watched the the attack on the towers and I knew immediately I, there were people in those towers who I knew and I didn't have relatives there. My loss wasn't anything like as significant as many people are in, in, involved in that situation. But I had spent a lot of time in those towers and I knew people there and I knew what had happened and why immediately. And my life spun and changed in that moment as so many other people's did. And you know, the media turned up literally at my door. People were desperate for anyone to talk about this. And... You know, I was a 20-something Brit who'd written the only book. It was the biggest news event in the world ever. Mm. I mean, nothing, nothing matches the, the obscenity and drama of, of that situation televised live from the heart of the world city as it was, you know. It's Pearl Harbor, but streamed. Mm. And, and so my life changed and, and I was on the telly mainly in America talking about it and I look back recently actually because I had to find some clips for something I've never looked back at these things and I was quite surprised I thought that I'd become rabbit in headlights immediately but I found some stuff I'd done the day it happened where I'm on the telly saying look the only solution to this is to look into the root causes and I felt a bit proud of I'm allowed it a bit proud of myself for saying that then and not just going we should nuke them you know mm. um but well we didn't did we we didn't address the root causes no. so no no help I was but um my life changed I went on the telly let's be honest it's quite a shallow medium I was young <laughs> I was an author I had my own hair and teeth it matters <laughs> BBC started talking to me about making tv programs and I was a bit reluctant at first because I thought I was an author and therefore <laughs> really? I was I must be taken seriously um but I went for it and thank god I did yeah. it's changed my life and it's gifted me the most extraordinary experiences mm. I wanted to sort of emphasize these early parts because I think it's just so interesting to look at where you came from to where you are because I think a lot of people sort of know you from recent tv telly. programs yeah. telly you know like people sort of understand what you're doing now but how mm. you get there is just incredible um, it, you said at the beginning there's you know I haven't followed the the normal path to be on telly I mean, there isn't really a normal path most very rarely can people say i'm going to be on the telly and forge a path towards it generally mm. if you look at the backgrounds of most telly presenter types they followed their passion mm. and a telly company has spotted them in some way and plucked them out yeah so yeah it's frightening i think in, that we live in a world where kids are told now you can have everything just you know Do overnight these, these are the steps no just for goodness don't just follow your heart and remember how the, the commitment that's involved in that you know it doesn't happen overnight mm. um i did not go to telepresenter school as is very apparent <laughs> <laughs> but thank goodness i think it'd be an interesting school with you and, and stafford <laughs> and ross kemp the up. egos that would be there can you imagine <laughs> the, the, the drama school or something like that yeah <laughs> the telepresenters <laughs> so i think in terms of like pe what people may know you from I mean, a lot of the book sort of goes into a lot of the behind the scenes of what was happening while you were filming these programs and particularly um, how the book the book starts um, in 2006 in Gabon where you 
think you might have Ebola. I don't want to spoil. Is it a spoiler? I don't really know. Um, it's you, your you show. You can yeah. do what you want. <laughs> I don't want to spoil your book. Everyone read it and find out what disease he had. But th- there's a lot of fantastic stuff there. Um, so I thought that instead of sort of going into a lot of that as well, I'd, I'd sort of be interested in hearing your thoughts on some sort of quick fire questions. Okay. Um, Answer a bit faster than you have been. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, typical favorite journey. You have to pick one. Not favourite country, to, but favourite journey. Favourite journey, I did a series called Places That Don't Exist about mm. unrecognised nations, which I think is still an unreported and little known aspect of our world. <laughs> okay, great. Sorry, I don't mean to Stop there. <laughs> no, I, I get it. Quick Fav- fire. Okay. Favourite country? Favourite country, Bangladesh. Really? In many ways. Yeah. Why is that? It's, it's poor and it's packed, but I feel I've had the highest number of inspiring meetings with people they're quite stroppy and bolshy. They they, <laughs> they revolt and riot and, and go on strike if they're not happy. Yeah. And um, they have a tough time, but I love the place and the people. Favourite travel writers? Do you have any? I don't really. Mm. Uh, I think a lot of it... How can I put this? I think a lot of travel writing, it can put people off. Mm-hmm. They think it's elite. It shouldn't be... I really like Bill Bryson. I would mm-hmm. if, I, if I was drawn to a style, it's more his bumbling waking up in the back of a car drooling sort of approach <laughs> than the square-jawed Brit abroad mm. sort of approach. That's why I, that's why I like pull through because he's so goddamn grumpy. It's like, <laughs> I've been like that before. It's more realistic, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in terms of, this is this is probably quite a big question, but I, I did actually want to know the answer to it because it's something you All refer right. to throughout the book, but in terms of ethical travel and the future of travel, and uh, you mentioned your son, Jake, just sort of, it occurred to me, I wonder what your picture of the future is going to be when Jake's sort of old enough to travel by himself and go to Scottish Highlander territory. What, yeah. what is travel going to be like? Um, because you raise so many questions throughout the book. Um, I mean, there's a particular conversation you have early on in the Gabon section mm. um, with uh, someone in a particular village who said, says, outlines the complications of the fact that they can no longer hunt in the area because of the national park system which Mm. is obviously to outsiders seems like a very nice protection and ensures that we can have lots of animals and lots of life in the land but these people then have lost a huge source of income Mm. and you're watching some participants from the village dance yeah um which can probably be quite an uncomfortable spectacle well it can look like a spectacle yeah yes and i think often people are well-meaning thoughtful progressive folk can be a little bit disturbed or unhappy about seeing villagers doing a dance for the tourists mm. but in that situation in lots like it what else are they going to do mm. we've collectively taken away their alternative ways of putting food on the table in that case the autocratic leader had declared much of the country to be national parks which is a good thing mm. however what the hell happens to the people who live in them and survive by hunting and eating what scampers in the woods we have to give economic alternatives to people and economic incentives to people as well, which is where I think tourism can play a massively significant role. It is a big question you're asking, mm. of, of course. I'm, I'm not going to um, rise to it enough, but I'll have, I'll have a crack. Mm. I think ethical tourism should be the only way. I'm personally against all the free choices offered by our consumer society and <laughs> capitalism as it is, and I'm very happy for us to have more restrictions imposed i think we need it the world's going to pop in lots of ways and i think the world that my son and future generations will inherit is going to be a a sad shadow of what we see now Mm -hmm. but what we see now is a shadow of what 
previous generations had. It's getting worse. We're transforming the world and we're destroying it environmentally, ecologically. It's a catastrophe. We are a catastrophe. We're brilliant and beautiful at the same time. But we just nobody is taking away the punch bowl at our party. <laughs> and so we're consuming, eating, we're eating the planet, for goodness sake, and all that it offers. But when it comes to the complications in that situation, we are also losing iconic wildlife, not just through our changing climate, which is happening, but through hunting and poaching. We're losing it at a, at a dramatic rate. So I do think ethical tourism, tourism generally, can play a role in protecting um, iconic, iconic life by us not just sitting by a swimming pool when we're on holiday, not that any Guardian listener would do such a thing, but never do that. getting out there and visiting, for example, a national park or a marine protected area, you're paying to keep that place going. Mm -hmm. You are fundamentally providing for people who live in that, live and work in that park and in the surrounding area. You're giving them an economic incentive to protect the wildlife in it. And that is critical because otherwise we lose these parks. They're logged, they're in, in the sea, they're fished to death. This is happening on our watch. So ethical tourism is definitely the way ahead. I think the future's not looking rosy at all. Mm. And I don't see fundamentally leadership coming through from anywhere, but even from democracies to, to change that, which is tragic, I think. Our leaders are, are managers rather than leaders. And so I don't, I don't feel very positive about the future. So on an individual level. Do your best. Do your best, basically. Do what's right and moral. But it's confusing and complicated because mm. there is an environmental impact, of course, from flying around our world. Definitely a huge one. We leave a footprint in everything we do. Every flipping internet search burns the planet's energy. I was pretty shocked recently when I found out about plastic in tea bags, but we won't we won't go there. <laughs> I but, didn't know about that. <laughs> yeah, it's a react. Look on the Guardian website for goodness' sake. It was <laughs> Sorry. A, and, and anyone who wants to sign up for a class action lawsuit, I'm I'm very keen. Anyway, um, you know, there's an impact for everything, and I'm, I don't wish to be flippant about it. I really believe that. But mm. there, are, we also, if we're going to go away, which I don't really think we're going to stop people doing because it's a brilliant thing to do, frankly. Mm travel with your eyes open take an interest don't get stuck in a resort put your money back into the communities don't go to places where or stay in a hotel owned by the dictator's son for goodness sake think about going to tricky places like burma you know make a moral judgment about it and decide what you're going to do to offset the situation not just paying for a tree to be planted but tell people about where you've been and what you've seen and share it there's never been a time for it Sorry, I, you wanted quick fire, but you got me on a no, rant. No, I'm no. sorry. That's actually, I wanted to end on something substantial. And something that's, ranty. That's okay. No, no, no that, that's absolutely wonderful. I mean, if we're going to end on a positive note, All right. we're going to do a complete 360 and okay. just do a very uh, quick shout out to Hilary Belden, your English teacher. Hilary Belden. Who gave you the book that changed your life. Being a books podcast, we have to do a big shout out to English teachers God. everywhere. Um, I'm sitting in the offices of the Guardian newspaper. <laughs> And you are reminding me of that. <laughs> I'm feeling a bit of a moment. <laughs> Thank you, Hillary. Yeah, yeah. Really. Yeah, she was... I had inspiring teachers. I did. I didn't listen to them. Mm. And I was a bit too far lost. But she was great. And she gave you Schindler's Ark she by Thomas Keneally. Schindler's Ark. Yeah, which I still have about four copies of. Really? And I still give away to people in the hope that it will provide a benchmark for their understanding of the awfulness that we can we can perpetuate in the bravery of some 
That was Simon Reeve. His book Step by Step is published by Hodder and Stoughton. Neil McGregor's Living with the Gods is published by Alan Lane and is out now. So, those are two of our Super Thursday recommendations. What about you? What are the books you're particularly excited about in the run-up to this Christmas? Send us an email to bookspodcast at theguardian.com or tweet us at Guardian Books. Next week, we hear from Kwame Anthony Appiah on The Lies That Bind, all about rethinking identity. And we go to the Tower of London, not for treason, but for something a lot more exciting. Hello, my name's uh, Christopher Scaife. I'm the Raven Master at Her Majesty's Royal Palace and Fortress, the Tower of London. I'm going to give you a thousand years of history, starting from 1066. It all began here in the year of 1066, when William the Conqueror invaded England. Oh, I had the best time of my life. Join us next week to find out more. So, from me, Sean Kane, and our producer, Susanna Trezillian, goodbye and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.